Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Hey, good morning, fellas. Morning. Morning, men. Morning. Welcome, welcome. Hey, we got any uh, Chiefs fans in the room this morning? Couple? We got a couple bandwagon fans. I was just checking for them. Uh, now, congratulations, guys. I was rooting for the Eagles, to be honest with you, but uh, congrats on number two. Um, we got an awesome morning teed up. We got a great speaker, so we're going to keep things pretty brief from my side of things. But if you guys open up your course books here to the very first page, Andy might throw them up on the screen as well, you'll find the four values that our men's ministry staff has laid out for us. And the one we're going to unpack this morning is the very last one up here, which is a heart to invest in others. And fellas, if you do some research, you'll find out that gardeners actually spend a lot of their time walking in and out of their vineyards and looking for weaker branches that have fallen off into the mud, that are bruised, beaten down. And contrary to popular belief, they don't just dispose of these branches, right? They don't throw them out as twigs or discard them or anything of that nature. What they'll actually do is they'll bend down, inspect the weaker branches, and they'll see if those are still attached to the vine, they still have the capabilities to produce fruit in their own capacity. So what they do is they bend down, find these weaker branches, dust them all off, clean them up, get them spick and shiny, get that mud off, get the bruises off. And then what they do is they'll actually intertwine that weaker branch to a stronger branch. So in essence, what they're doing is they're building a support system for that weaker branch until it can grow, mature, and produce fruit in its own right and in its own capacity. And fellas, that's a direct correlation to our Christian walk and how we are to interact with other men. And I've been on the receiving end of that metaphor. Um, I walked into this room for the first time. It was the block at the time, four years ago, uh, with my buddy Chad Thornberry still here today, and we didn't know a person in the room. I ended up getting connected to Chris Burke's table. He didn't ask for my resume. He didn't ask for my qualifications. He didn't ask what the heck am I doing at his table. All he did was see that I had a heart to know more. I wanted more out of life, and that's all that mattered to him. He quickly took me under his wing and he became that stronger branch for me. Did Chris Burke become the vine for me? Absolutely not. There's no one in your life that can replace or replicate the role God has in your life, but he did become that stronger branch where he would intertwine himself with my weaker branch until I could grow and mature and produce fruit in my own right. And there's so many other men I could call out like Michael Cooper and Ronnie that have invested in me and the reason I'm up here today But that's the power of having a heart to invest in others, right? Four years later, um, I had the ability to start my own man challenge table. Mason King actually multiplied that table this past semester. And then three weeks ago during Ronnie's message, he's on stage baptizing Dez. So it was a really cool full circle moment. And again, is that to say, look at us, look at what we're doing? No, that's not the intention at all. The intention is to show when there's men like Chris Burke, that invest in others, you can see that multiplication effect at play and you can see that come to fruition. And fellas, when we start investing in one another, 
we start to naturally do life with other men. And that's God's design for us to live in community. There was a, a research study done by the University of Virginia. And there was psychologists that sat at the bottom of a hill. And as different groups came by, they'd ask a question. They'd say, will you measure the steepness and difficulty of this climb? Now, there was three different groups in the experiment. Group number one was a group of men completely in isolation. So students would walk on up. Researchers would ask at the bottom of the hill, hey, will you measure the steepness and difficulty of this climb? And rate it on a scale one to 10, 10 being the most difficult. The first group in isolation, the average answer was an eight. Right, that's a pretty tough hill, fellas. I'm not ready to climb that at 6 a.m. this morning. The second group was a group of two or three students, no more than three. Same psychologist, same hill, same grading scale, same question. Hey, can you measure the steepness and difficulty of this climb? On an average of one to 10, their answer was now a six. That's a whole lot easier to climb. What's most interesting though, is there's a third control group. And this third control group comes up, it's the same group size. So you still have a group of two or three men, but the key caveat with this one is that these are longtime friends. So these are best friends in this group. Same researchers, same hill, same grading scale, same question. Will you measure the steepness and difficulty of this climb? And on average, they answered with a four. And fellas, that's remarkable. We went from an eight to a pretty difficult hill in isolation all the way down to a four when we lock arms with one of our best friends. So I don't, I don't really wanna wake up and, and pursue this mountain of life, this hill of life, but if I got my best friend alongside me, we're locking arms, we're uniting, I, I think I can take that on. And fellas, it's not a psychological effect for why they perceived it to be easier. It is easier because that's God's design for us, right? We're called to live in community. We're called to lock arms and do life together. And you can look at either metaphor, the same message is the exact same. We need a support system in our life. At certain times, you'll be the guy stumbling up the hill. At certain times, you'll need a guy helping you up. You may be the weaker branch, you may be the stronger branch. And I'd be willing to bet you'll be in either situation multiple times in your life. So find a group of dudes you can take on life with. I'll close this out with this verse. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Two are better than one, fellas. That's my message for us. Um, we're going to bring out our speaker this morning, a man that really needs no introduction, Chris Burke. <laughs> Chris, I just want to say to you, thank you, man, man to man in all seriousness. Thank you for being a man of faith and investing in that and pouring into me. I want to give you your full time. So one quick question for you. Can you take us back to the early stages of your walk and talk us through, you know, why was baptism your next step of faith? And then if I can add to that, for any man out here who's thinking about baptism, how could you encourage them if that's their next step of faith? Uh, yeah, um, I got baptized. Actually, my wife She's really good at these calendar reminder things. I'm not, I'm not like Ronnie. I don't have anniversaries for everything. But um, I, got, I got baptized um, 18 years ago yesterday, um, interestingly enough. So in 2005, and uh, it was a huge step of faith for me. Uh, I wasn't walking away from what I, I was raised in, but I was uh, taking a, a bit of a, a new direction and my wife and I had been really felt led to join here, but um, there was some 
You know, there were some things I needed to overcome myself in my own walk for, my, for me and my wife. And, you know, one of my favorite verses when I was a young married man is, you know, the, the man will leave his father and mother, mother and the two will become united. They will become one. Like I needed to kind of make that step for me and my wife. Um, and she was really waiting for me to do it. Um, so number one, uh, it's edifying to publicly, you know, Romans 10, 9, right? We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we are saved. So to stand in front of a group of people and publicly confess my faith, uh, to practice or to uh, participate in baptism, uh, that, that, that dying and being raised to life, that, that born again picture. But then just, I think in the process of love and respect with me and my wife, I think it was a, a big kind of first step in becoming the spiritual leader of our home of saying, as for me and you, we're going to do this. Um, so uh, becoming a member here, being baptized here uh, was very much, I, I think, uh, not only an act of obedience in my, in my faith well, with the Lord, but also a step in uh, early of uh, trying to lead my wife and, and now ultimately lead my home. But it was a, it was kind of a, it was a big step for sure. Um, yeah, and I would encourage anybody who's thinking about it um, to pray hard on it because uh, number one, I think God's calling you to it. Number two, um, the fruit that can come from it, uh, you, you, you can't even quite equate at this, on this side of it. So that's awesome. Yep. Thanks brother. I'm yep. going to give you the, the floor. Let me praise out. Okay. We'll yep. go. Let's do it. Father God, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for this incredible group of men. Thank you for this community, this setting where we get to come together in the mornings and praise you and worship you openly. Uh, pray that you open our hearts and eyes this morning to the word you may have for us. Uh, please speak through Chris this morning. And fellas, as we go out, uh, may we be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. Mm. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Hunter. Appreciate you, brother. Um, good morning, man. How we doing? Everybody good? Uh, interesting weather for my passage today. Perfect, actually. Uh, I don't know about y'all. But this series, this Wreck the Roof series has been fantastic for me. Um, this is the last week of our Wreck the Roof series. We, we took the, the first word of that church mantra, Wreck the Roof, uh, Wreck, turned it into an acronym. Each week has been um, a different topic on um, how we look for others, how we bring people to Jesus, this concept of a disciple-making environment and trying to point people towards Jesus, trying to get them in there no matter what we got to do, even if we got to, even if we literally have to wreck the roof. So uh, Chris broke week one, watching for opportunities. Joe was week two, removing obstacles. Ronnie showed off his singing chops. Is Ronnie, Ronnie here today? Where's Ronnie at? Ronnie can sing. Did y'all know Ronnie? Because I didn't know Ronnie because that was pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, certainly better than I can do. Ronnie talked about embracing the mess. And last week, Sam... Uh, talked about that call for help. And I, I've been here, I don't know, 15 years or so. I cannot tell you how much I need this group, how much I need to be here, how much it impacts me more today than 15 years ago. Like life for me is a lot more complicated than it was 15 years ago. We were, we, we had one little bitty baby girl. And now we got five all over the five kids that are ages four to 15. Life's a lot more complicated. It's a lot messier. And I need this now more than ever. Sam's message last week, the call for help uh, resonated for us at our table. We decided to kick around the idea of how could we be better helpers at home? 
Like, how do I need to help my wife more? Um, and that list is, is very long, but we started talking about it. And uh, I got into uh, a situation that happened between her and I about six, eight years ago where she said, I'm fortunate to be married to a woman who's not afraid to call me out to help. She, she, she asks for my help. I'm grateful for that because I can lose my focus. We're going to talk about that today. Um, but she kind of, she likes to say, Burke, I need you to get in the game. I need you to get in the game here, Burke. She'll say it to me all the time. She, get, she puts her coaching voice on. And I was kind of out of the game. I was maybe not paying attention to some of the things around the house I needed to. She called me out of that. And I was telling the guys that story. And I was like, you know, it's not like she asked me to go to preschool Valentine's Day parties. I mean, she just, she wants me to just have eyes for the laundry. She wants me to have eyes for the dishes. She wants me to have eyes for taking on tasks that I constantly just know she'll do and don't even ask how they're going or if I can help. She just wants me to have eyes around the house. She don't want me to go to preschool Valentine's Day party. I'm past that. Wait, I've graduated past that. I got home. <laughs> babe, I need to talk to you. What's up, babe? I need your help today. Can you go to Connor's Valentine's Day party? I said, what? What, what did you say? So, well, we got the heating and air guy come in at 10. I haven't had a chance to run in like two, three days. I really need to get out of the house. I need to clear my brain. She gives me this laundry list of what's going on in the house. She's like, Connor has a Valentine's Day party at 11. Could you go? <laughs> I thought somebody at our table would put her up to it. Like, I just literally could not. I pulled this. It's not like she makes me go to Valentine's Day parties out of total thin air. And I walked in the door and it's immediately what she asked me to do. So... Fortunately, because of Sam's, where's Sam at? Because of Sam's call to help, oh, there he is. Um, I had eyes for that. I had ears for that. I was very much in a, a, a spirit of wisdom, like we talked about last week in Acts chapter two. And man, I rocked, I rocked a four-year-old Valentine's Day party last week. So uh, it had been about three years, but I made my last, this is our last preschooler. So uh, the call to help was impactful for me. Uh, hopefully it was for you guys. And this concept of just having eyes and ears to help others. Today, uh, we're not going to talk about uh, the call to help. Today, we're going to talk about keeping our focus. And uh, one of the things that I want us to think about, everybody here, how do you keep your focus on something you, if you haven't articulated what your focus is? How do I stay focused on something that I haven't said I'm focused on? Right. So we're going to talk a little bit today about what we're aiming after, what we're focused on, uh, what we're chasing after. And hopefully this clip will, will illustrate that for us. Long of you stay here. Samuel. Margaret. I want you to hide in the fields with William and Susan. If we're not back by sunset, I want you to take them to your Aunt Charlotte's. Is that clear? Boys.
It's a good spot. Boys, listen to me. I'll fire first. I want you two to start with the officers and work your way down. Can you tell the difference? Yes, Father. Yes, Father. Good. Samuel, after your first shot, I want you to reload for your brother Nathan. Now, if anything should happen to me, I want you two to drop your weapons and I want you to run as quickly as you can. Now you hide in the brush, make your way home, get your brother and your sisters and you take them to your Aunt Charlotte's. Understood? What did I tell you fellas about shooting? Aim small, Aim small miss small. small. Aim small, miss small. Boys, Samuel, steady. Sorry, we could watch that all morning. You guys would much rather watch that than listen to me. But man, I love that film. I love that, that part. As somebody that spent most of my last decade coaching youth sports teams, I've had a lot of those conversations with quivering lips and tears where I'm telling them to be steady. Uh, this ain't about your feelings. We got something to do right now. Uh, get out of your feelings, right? Uh, but this concept, aim small, miss small. Now, at Man Challenge, I think Ronnie's done a fantastic job of articulating our goal here is to have confidence and competence in who Jesus is. Like, that's our aim. Spoiler alert, none of us are going to nail that. We're, we're, we're sinful people. But man, if, if our aim is small, hopefully our miss will be small, right? We're never going to be sinless, but hopefully we're going to sin less and we can look a little bit more like Jesus but there's only one way that's going to happen is if our aim is small right and if our our gaze is fixed and if we are dialed in on the author and perfecter of our faith so with this in mind we're going to talk about our text today uh, I'm going to ask you guys to open up to Acts chapter 27 and we are going to talk about a dude whose aim was very small whose focus was very clear and who did not get deterred. Like, like Paul is about as uh, tunnel visioned of a dude as you will find. Um, and we're seeing him at the end of a very long journey. Um, and this is some pretty good stuff. So a couple of things here. Paul has been arrested. He went to Jerusalem against the advice of his, of his buddies. They, why are you going to go to Jerusalem, bro? You're, you're going to get arrested. I, I know. I, I'm going to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. 
essentially gets arrested for the same thing Jesus was arrested for. He gets arrested for disturbing the peace. He gets arrested for uh, uh, changing, try, attempting to change the status quo. Basically, he made a bunch of the Jewish leaders really, really uncomfortable. Why? Because he's preaching this new gospel this story of good news, this resurrected king that has come to flip everything upside down. Because of that, he was causing a stir. They arrested him. He basically saw pretty much every king and governor and leader there was to see. And at some point, he's, because he was a Roman citizen and because God told him he was going to go to Rome, Paul asks to, for his case to be tried in Rome. So he's in Jerusalem. He asks for his case to be tried in Rome. They grant him that request. And so he's handed over to, we start there in uh, chapter 27. We're going to be in chapter 28, but you really can't appreciate 28 unless we talk about 27. So go to chapter 27. We see Paul is handed over, uh, and Paul and some other prisoners are handed over to a centurion named Julius, uh, who's, you know, going to take these guys from uh, Jerusalem, and they're going to sail to Rome. Okay, now... Because of some holidays, because of some uh, things in the text, we know that this is not exactly sailing season. It's like somewhere between October and November. Um, and this is the, the time where storms are heavy on the seas. So we, we, you, verses 1 through 9, uh, they start their journey. And they end up, you guys can see here on our map, they, they go from uh, Sidon to Myra, and then they end up there in uh, if you see there in the middle, that island of Crete, they're in fair havens, fair havens, fair heavens, fair havens. Sounds like a good place to, to set up shop, right? I mean, well-named chamber, chamber of commerce. I was listening to a podcast like that sounds like a chamber of commerce kind of name. The problem is, if you look there in, uh, in verse 10, they didn't think they could winter there. Like they knew their time on the sea was probably short, but something about fair havens, they didn't want to be there. That's not where they wanted to set up for, for uh, the winter. And so they're trying to get from Fairhavens just around the corner there to Phoenix. You guys with me there? Just all they got to go is 40 miles from Fairhavens to Phoenix. In verse 10, Paul raises his hand. Paul's not afraid to raise his hand. Paul says, man, I can see this voyage is going to be a disaster and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But it says the centurion in verse 11, didn't listen to him, he listened to the pilot and the owner of the ship. I don't blame him, I mean, who's Paul? Why would this centurion listen to Paul? Like, he's gonna listen to the pilot, he's gonna listen to the owner of the ship. They're gonna go to Phoenix, regardless of what this pr crazy preacher dude says. So they take off, and in verse 13, I love that, the in my NIV version, it says, when a gentle south wind began to blow, next thing you know, a gentle wind turned into a hurricane. And in verse uh, 14, we see this northeaster had swept across the island and the ship was caught by the storm and off they went. And so literally, guys, they're just trying to turn the corner from Fairhavens to Phoenix and they end up in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea with big problems. Like they are, they are off. And it is so bad. If you look from 13 to 19, you can see they start tossing stuff overboard. They're trying to figure out how to make it. And uh, it's really neat. Luke is on, on the ship with Paul. Luke's the writer of Acts. Luke's the writer of the book of Luke, of the gospel of Luke. Read there in verse 20, he says, um, for many days, the storm continued raging. They could not see sun or stars. And he said, they finally gave up all hope. He actually says, we 
finally gave up all hope of being saved. I think that's interesting. Like, is that we, including Paul, is that we, like the other 275 of us, we'll see here in a second, there's 276 men on board. But he says, we, the storm was so bad, verse 20, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. But verse 21, you guys are going to love Paul. Paul, I mean, you guys already do love Paul, but this, this stuff has made me just, I cannot wait to meet Paul. Paul says, in verse 21, he says, after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice. I mean, is that just be like, I tried to tell you, okay? I say this to my basketball players all the time. Quit reaching in. Like, I tried to tell you, now you have three fouls. Here's the bench. Sit right next to me. I told you it's no fun, right? You'd rather be on the court. But you just won't listen to me. So Paul says, I tried to tell you, men, you should have taken my advice to, sail from, to not sail from Crete. Then we, wouldn't have, we would have spared ourselves all the damage and loss. But since you did listen to me, let me give you some good news. I urge you to keep your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now you imagine that these dudes are probably like, okay, so we're not going to die, but the ship is going to be destroyed. This sounds, this sounds interesting. Um, last night, an angel, I love this, guys. Paul is a man who's very clear in his identity, very clear in his purpose. He says, last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. God is graciously giving you and the lives of all that you sail with. So keep up your courage. Have faith that God, so he says to the men, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. And then at the very end, he says, we, we are going to need to run this ship aground, just so you know. So uh, verses 27 um, Verses 27 through 32, we see that there, there's, some, there's some sailing terms I'm not going to get into, but essentially they're taking tests to see that the, the water is getting more shallow, like they're coming upon land. Uh, the, their, their fears are heightened. They are worried about a shipwreck, right? Because as they come into land, there's a lot of times there, there's rocks that could be hit. There's sandbars that could blow a ship up. So these guys are starting to fear the worst. We see some different stuff going on. They're trying to cut the ropes. Paul's like, no, 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 don't forget. What I told you, like, God's going to save us. Don't worry. Um, and we see there in verse 33 that um, Paul decides to feed them. They know they're about to hit land, which means probably the part of the revelation that he was given is about to take place where the ship is about to be destroyed. Who knows what they're about to be up against? So Paul says that they should eat. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat for the last 14 days. You have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. 14 days without eating. That's how bad this storm has been. Just, just seasick and nauseous and scared to death. 14 days they haven't eaten. And Paul takes them down there below the ship and it's like they have like kind of a mini communion. He breaks bread. He gives them thanks. And it says the men eat till they have their full. Luke tells us when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the rest of the grain overboard. They knew their day had come. Like they're, they're fixing to run into something. So we see in, in verse 39, when, uh, when the daylight came, uh, they, they, they dropped the anchors. It says the, down there in 41, the bow stuck fast and would not move. The stern was broken into pieces by the pounding surf. And here's what's so great. Like Paul just fed them. He just gave them this revelation that they were going to live 
Like literally, they have no shot without Paul, right? Once the, once the boat breaks and everything goes sideways, it says, verse 42, the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners. Like immediately, the soldiers had a new plan. Let's kill them all. But fortunately, Paul had made such an impression on the centurion that it says that the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. So the boss is like, no, 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 no. We're not going to kill the prisoners. I certainly don't want to kill Paul. We can't kill the rest of them and not kill Paul. So he said he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and swim toward shore. The rest of them literally surfed their way onto, onto the beach. They grabbed a plank. They grabbed some wood. They, they found their way onto this refuge. Now, guys, I want you to ch check out this map again. Look where, they, look where they got caught out to sea. They could have ended up anywhere. And I want you to look at Malta. Like you literally wouldn't be able to see it if we didn't have uh, the name next to it. It's this little bitty speck of an island. A rudderless ship blown by the sea and the waves and the wind. But fortunately for them, God, the God who Paul serves, ran them into this little bitty tiny island. And if he didn't, they were, they were certainly dead. There was nowhere else to run into. But they, 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 they arrive on the shores of Malta, which is our, our passage for today. Uh, Malta is interesting. It's the, the name literally means a refuge. <clears throat> so picking up uh, in chapter 28, you can see this crazy voyage that they've been on. Mind you, Paul, we, we learn in Corinthians, Paul's already been shipwrecked three times. This is now his fourth time being shipwrecked. So Paul is kind of a He's kind of an expert at, at shipwrecks. He's kind of an expert at, uh, at the sea. That's why they probably should have listened to him. But as, as they come upon shore here, uh, chapter 28, verse 1, once safely on the shore, we found out the island was called Malta. The islanders show, showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was rainy and cold. So it's cold, rainy. The, the islanders, the natives, the Malaysians, uh, show them great kindness. Now, this is an interesting scene we're about to find out. They realize that some of these dudes are soldiers, some of them are prisoners, like, but for whatever reason, God's favor, they decide to take care of these folks. They see them coming on, on shore, it's cold, it's rainy. They're like, let's, let's take care of these guys. So uh, they built them a fire and they welcomed us. I love this first person language by Luke. Um, you know, the scriptures are always powerful, but I just think when Paul uses pronouns we and us like man I mean Luke like he was Luke was a part of this right so he said they built a fire they welcomed us it was raining and cold Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire a viper drawn out by the heat fastened itself on his hand now a couple of points about Paul here like literally they're only alive because of Paul that's the only reason they're still alive they just swam upon shore we don't we don't see if Paul was one of the ones who could swim or if he's hanging on some wood and some debris, how he got to shore. But what does Paul do as soon as he gets to shore? He doesn't post up shop. He doesn't take shelter. He doesn't walk around and give everybody his spiritual resume and remind them of how they're only alive because of him. What Paul does is what? He starts building a fire. Paul starts grabbing bush and he starts building a fire like just Paul is so focused on his work. He is so undeterred by the circumstances, by his feelings, by his personal uh, fatigue, by all these other obstacles around him. He is so sure of his aim to love God and love others. So certain to make disciples that he was called to do that to the ends of the earth. So certain of that, 
that cold, tired, wet, exhausted, he grabs some brush and starts building a fire, starts helping these natives help the prisoners who just like minutes ago were trying to kill him. Like just, just wild, right? And what does he get for it? He gets a snake, not, it doesn't just say a snake bite, like the snake fastened itself on his hand. Uh, that's pretty good language there. Something tells me that was not a um, comfortable thing, but we, we get to know the character of Paul here a little bit better. We also get to know the character of these islanders. It says in verse four, when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, so it's fastened to his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, right? And, and, and these, uh, these islanders had a, had a uh, form of, of uh, karma. They believed in this, Hinduistic, paganistic word of karma that uh, no judgment. If we're being honest, there's some men in this room that probably use it because it's kind of an American term. That, ah, karma, karma got you, karma. Karma is a Hinduist, it's a Hindu term. Christians don't believe in karma. They believe in grace. They believe in an all-knowing, all-loving, uh, all-sovereign Lord. But these islanders, similar to our culture, they believe in this concept of karma. I always find it fascinating about karma. If you ever look karma up, like karma is not always something bad happens to a bad dude, even though that's how we use it in American culture. Like, oh, karma. My man, Coach Max here at the table, one of my favorite coaches in all the world. He had a game a few years ago. You guys probably remember it. I, I ended up in a very long, healthy conversation with one of my coworkers after this. College World Series. One of his pitchers was dominating. They're trying to get to the national championship game. And he has some friendly words, maybe some not so friendly words for a Vanderbilt hitter. And the next inning, what happens coach? He gives up the lead, right? And I can't tell you how many people, karma, karma got him, karma. I said, no, no, karma didn't get him. He hung a breaking ball to a really good hitter. Guy had a rocket, like no, like it's the ninth inning. Like, you know, maybe coach should have got him. No, I'm just saying, uh, the, 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 like, no, it's baseball. No, 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 no. He, he cussed that dude out, so that's why they won. Uh, okay, like, if that's your deal, like, I, I can tell you a lot of teammates that I played with that did a lot of bad things that had a lot of good things happen to them. And I can tell you a lot of really good teammates that did a lot of really good things that got cut and nobody ever heard their name. And like this, this concept of karma, like, just sorry for the soapbox, but like, men, is like, can, can I give this like for a man challenge? Like, just don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. Galatians 6, 7 says you reap what you sow. Like that's a, that's a biblical truth, whether in this life or the next. But like sometimes really bad things happen to good people. I never, nobody ever quotes karma when something really bad happens to a really good person. You know why we don't believe in that? Because the reality is we're all bad. We all deserve death. Praise God for his grace, right? And so the, these islanders, they have this, this karma viewpoint and they're like, oh, well, yeah, the, the snake bit him. This, this must be one of the really bad prisoners. That's why the snake bit him, right? He's about to die. Well, Paul's got a little something, something different planned. So it says, this man must be a, uh, a murderer for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess of justice has not allowed him to live. So they had this pagan culture. They had a belief in, in uh, these different gods and goddesses. And one of them was literally named Justice. And Justice had showed up. Just karma had showed up. This dude's a really bad dude. He's about to die. 
So the people expected him to swell up suddenly and fall dead. Now, something tells me they've seen a few people be bit by these snakes, and they're very sure of what's supposed to happen. He's supposed to swell up and die. He's supposed to drop dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their mind and said he was a god. Like, is this, is this, is this culture? You're so bad, you're about to die. Maybe you're a god. Like, it's unreal, right? Just the, the, the ebbs and flows of the crowd and how people are so prone to these polarizing viewpoints and these extreme opinions about man. Like, we're always, we're just obsessed with man. And, and, and obviously what sells are these extremely polarizing viewpoints and opinions. And so Paul was way too focused to worry about the crowd way too focused to worry about whether they thought he was a murderer or whether they thought he was a God. Like this has happened to Paul before earlier in Acts. He, he heals a, a crippled dude and they drop to their knees and start worshiping. And Paul's like, get up, get up. I'm a man just like y'all. Don't do that. Don't do that. I'm, I'm, I'm just a dude. Put my pants on just like y'all. So Paul's used to this, but, but one of the lessons we learned about really focused dudes is they don't get caught up too much in the crowd. They're not, they're not easily swayed by the opinion of man. So in verse 7, it says, There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home. And for three days, he entertained us hospitably. His father was sick, suffering from fever and dysentery. <clears throat> Paul went in to see him. And after prayer, he placed his hands on him and healed him. I needed to hear this, like this passage, I got assigned to it. I'm a Sam, what are we, what are we thinking here with this passage? Like, man, I'm, I fell in love with all this stuff. It's the book Acts is incredible. But this, this one right here, I always go through this stuff. Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Lord, what are you trying to show me? Help me to give some, 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 some nuggets for these guys to chew on and point them towards you and spur conversation at the table. Here is Paul. He's, we're at the end of Acts. He's performed all these miracles. Literally an angel of God has told him he's going to make it. He's had all these miraculous things. He just, flung a snake off his hand, like Paul. This dude's dad's sick. They bring him in. Like, if it was me, I'd be like, yeah, another healing. I got this. I've done this plenty of times. Yeah, you're good. Like, Paul pauses to pray. And I, I really, really needed this this week. Like, because I, if I'm being honest, I, this is the part I can struggle the most with, with God. Like, He's all-knowing, he's all-loving, he's all-sovereign. I know that. So, Lord, you know what's going on. So just, you do you. And I, I, I'm with you. Whatever you decide. Like, instead of pausing to pray, instead of being intentional with my prayers, instead of being super focused on a heart for those around me and my ugly heart towards the areas where I'm struggling, like, instead of that kind of focus and that kind of connection to the source, I can... I can shortchange this part in my walk. I really can. And it just is so encouraging to me. And I hope for some of you guys that are struggling with your prayer life to just see Paul's conviction and commitment to prayer. Like a dude who could easily bypass that just pauses to pray and get connected to the only one who can do a miracle. Because Paul's very sure, he's so focused, his aim is so clear that it's this God working through him. This is the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. Not him, but only God through him. <clears throat> that he pauses to pray. He heals 
the chief, it says the chief official of the island, he heals his dad. Uh, it says the rest of the sick of the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So that's our passage. This, this concept of, of keeping our focus. And I, I, through this passage, I just give you three things I think that we can learn from Paul uh, on how to keep our focus. So three things. Number one, servant leadership. When you are focused on Jesus, when you're focused on making disciples, when you are focused on the author and perfecter of our faith, this servant leadership part is an overflow of that. It is the fruit that comes from a submission to the Lord. Lord, what do you have for me? Uh, we, we read in the Gospels that Jesus himself said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And this is an absolute core principle of those who are chasing after the Lord is to serve and to look for ways to use your gifts for God's glory and the good of others. Paul shows us that immediately when he walks onto the island and this concept of how can I help those around me? How can I use what God's given me? I got a little extra measure of strength right now. These dudes look tired. Let me build us a fire. And just, oh, by the way, sometimes when you're building fires for others, you get a snake on your hand. Like just spoiler alert. Okay, so it happened to Paul. It can happen to you. Uh, don't get in your feelings. Steady. Steady, as Mel Gibson said. Number two, don't get caught up in the crowd. Right. If, if you're going to keep your focus, you can't get caught up in the crowd. That doesn't mean you don't work to be peacemakers with those around you. That is a, certainly a biblical concept. God calls us to love him and love others. God calls us to treat others as we would expect to be treated. You should love and care for people. And if you have conflict and disagreement, you should strive to be a peacemaker. But men, I'm just going to tell you, when you're focused on the Lord, the crowd is going to chatter. And some of them. Some of them are going to love you and some of them are not. And so that's just a, that's just a truth that will be true until Jesus comes back. Like the reality is the crowd is going to have their opinion. And when you are focused on truth and you are focused on the Lord, you got to be able to stay on the straight and narrow, regardless of the noise around you. Number three, prioritize prayer. And can I just tell you guys, like I, I told you about, this is a struggle for me. James 1, 5 really helped my prayer life. James 1.5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and will be given to you. As a man who's got a few irons in the fire and who feels extremely responsible for loving and caring for those just that are looking at me every day in my home, I can feel very overwhelmed by that. And this verse changed my prayer life. God wants to give me wisdom. He wants to give you wisdom. He's, he's challenging you through James. He's challenging you to ask him. And so what Paul tells us, man, is, is the third way you can stay focused. The third thing we learn from Paul, man, is focus dudes, prioritize prayer. And, and not just kind of these macro, like, God, give me wisdom to handle this difficult person. God, give me wisdom to handle this big decision. God, give me a heart for somebody that, I don't really have a heart for like, and here's the hard part, fellas, is when you pray prayers like that, he will answer them. And sometimes the truth is we don't really want him to. That's the hardest part. But, but taking that leap of faith to asking God to show up is the step 
we need. And like Paul models just that connection to prayer. And I just, man challenge for the room, like guys, take James up on his challenge to you. Pray for wisdom. Pray specifically for how you can be a better helper to your wife or how you can tame your tongue in moments of trial or how you can be more generous with your finances. Like, like pray that specifically and watch God do his thing. So I'm going to close with this and I'm going to go back to verse six, the goddess of justice. Now, why are we going back to the goddess of justice? This one knocked my socks off this week and I hope it does to you. We have a thing here. No matter what you do up here, we're going to preach the gospel. Jesus came to die for your sins. The good news is that through faith in that, you can have eternal life. Like that is the good news of the gospel. Chapter six or verse six the goddess of justice, the, what did the people think? They thought the goddess of justice had showed up and the snake had bit his hand and that was it for him because he was a murderer. Now they didn't know that Paul was arrested for disorderly conduct. They thought he must be really bad. This snake fastened on his hand. I wonder what Paul was thinking. What does Paul know? What do we know about Paul? He is a murderer. Paul does deserve death. I wonder if Paul is sitting there going, well, this isn't why I'm arrested, but I wonder if these people do know I, I actually am a murderer. Like when I was Saul, before I met the resurrected Lord, I, I, I am a murderer. And really, if karma's real, they're probably right. I probably do deserve to die here by this snake. But thank goodness, as Romans 6, 23 says, praise God that the wages of sin is death. Like Paul deserved to die, but praise God for the gift we have through Christ Jesus. Like this is the crux of this passage. And Luke just kind of slides that in there on us. Not that he made it up, but it's just the, the parallels of what we're seeing here all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God promises that his son will one day step on the head of a serpent. Like that snake had no dominion over Paul, zero. And Paul knew it because he's so focused. His aim is so clear. And guys, the good news today that I want to share with you is that snake, whatever that snake is in your life that's got its fastened to your hand, that snake has no dominion over you. Like, like you are free through the blood of Jesus. And the good news is the same as Paul as he's making that fire is the same of us today. That snake that's on your hand has no power over you. None. The same God that rose Jesus from the grave, the same God that changed Paul on the road to Damascus, the same God that promised him he was going to make it through that storm, the same one lives in you if you've accepted that. And so here we are in the story of a dude on an island, but the reality is we're getting the gospel all over again, that we all deserve a murderer's death. We are all separated from God by sin. Praise God that he loves us so much that he sent us his son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for this, this passage. Thank you for the example of Paul and how he teaches us what a dude who is supremely focused on you looks like. Lord, I pray that if there are some men in this room that have not made that their aim, Lord, that you would convict them today to start chasing after you. Lord, we, we, we want to be men who are guilty of chasing after you. So would you show us how to keep our focus? Lord, this, this, this world is after us. It's trying to distract us in a million different ways. Lord, will you help us to follow the example of Paul and just stay focused, God? Help us to stay focused. 
Help us to keep our aim set on the author and perfecter of our faith, which is Jesus, Lord. And even though I know we'll miss, help our miss to be small, Lord, that you would get the glory, Lord, that somehow people would see a small glimpse of you in us. Lord, use us for your glory. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.